it's been an interesting time trying to prepare this one actually because normally normally when I write a message I, I take the time when the girls are at school and I've got a nice quiet house and I can spend a few hours really just focused in you know um, but they've been off with chickenpox for what's felt like a really really long time and so I've had to try and write this one at the same time as having a, a not empty house um, so I wasn't expecting to be back up here quite so soon after the last time but it is very nice to be asked um, and it's, it's given me the chance to start a series um, it's a bit cheeky isn't it I've offered one sermon and I've started a series um, so you might get the rest of it at some point. Um, but I first thought about this one over a year ago. Um, it's much more of a real like teaching kind of message. Uh, but it comes out of something which really captured my imagination. Um, and that's Paul's relationship with the Thessalonians. Okay, And what I want to try and do with this is to really get a feel for the people that we're looking at. Um, what was going on in their situation at the time. Um, because as we're going to see, Paul goes to set up a church in Thessalon Thessalonica on his second missionary journey. But he ends up having to be smuggled out during the night before he's actually finished teaching what he wants to teach them. Um, so we end up with this church with a really broad demographic and an incomplete teaching. And they're facing persecution. Um, and Paul is left pretty desperate to know how they're getting on. Um, so what I want to do is I want to start in Acts 17, verses 1 to 10. Okay, this is kind of our, our backstory. It says, Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. Then Paul, as was his custom, went into them and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and demonstrating that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead saying, this Jesus whom I preach to you is the Christ. Some of them were persuaded, and a great multitude of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women, joined Paul and Silas. But the Jews who were not persuaded, becoming envious, took some of the evil men of the marketplace, and gathering a mob, set all the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, and sought to bring them out to the people, but when they didn't find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brethren to the rulers of the city, crying out, These who have turned the world upside down have come here too. Jason has harbored them, and these are all acting contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying there's another king, Jesus. And they troubled the crowd and the rulers of the city when they heard these things. So when they'd taken security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. Then the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. So the original aim for my series was to work through the book of 1 Thessalonians. But before we can even get into the letter, I think it's really helpful for us to see this backstory. Because um, this is the story of how the Thessalonian church actually came to exist. Um, and like I say, I find this relationship between Paul and this particular church really interesting because um, there was quite a bit of drama. Um, and they had to be effectively smuggled out of the city before they'd had the chance to do what they wanted to do. And I can kind of imagine Paul there going, oh, I wasn't done yet, you know? Um, they hadn't taught them all the things they wanted to. They had to leave 
um, them as new converts, essentially, uh, to carry on without the benefit of experienced oversight um, and whilst dealing with a lot of persecution. And this, this is the new church, so there's not all this, you know, like we've got all this access to loads of information and doctrine. It's all been quite established. You know, they just did not have that. Um, so, lost my place. So the first thing I want to look at is a sense of the geography that we're dealing with. And I've put up two maps. We've got Thessalonica in Paul's time and then Thessalonica now. Um, it was and it still is a major city. Um, I was mentioning this to a friend yesterday and she said, oh, I got this tan in Thessalonica the other week. <laughs> um, and it was a big port as well. Uh, I'm not entirely sure if it still is, but I'm assuming it still was. In Paul's day, there was a lot of import and export coming through this. Um, and it was a principal station on something called the Via Ignatia, which is the major road running right from the Adriatic Sea all the way across to uh, what we now call Istanbul. And this is the road that Paul was traveling on this particular missionary journey. Um, and you can see I've added a picture of this is some of what remains of that road, but in the modern day. Okay. So he's just come from Philippi in the east. And we know that because when he writes the first letter, 1 Thessalonians, he kind of reminisces a little bit about his visit. And he says to them in chapter 2, after we had already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, as you know, we had the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God amid much opposition. So I feel a bit sorry for Paul, really. He gets mistreated in Philippi. Then he faces opposition in Thessalonica. And as we saw in Acts, he has to be smuggled out from of there to Berea in the night. But somehow he's still able to speak with boldness. And in, to me, that has to be the Holy Spirit. Because um, I think most of us, if we were facing that kind of a struggle, without the Holy Spirit, we'd have probably given up by now, wouldn't we? Um, or, or at least like talked ourselves out of it. You know, I think I think I might have. Um, but we know that he gets to Berea and he carries on yet again, sharing the gospel with the people he finds there. And I was thinking, what if he hadn't? Like, what if, what if he got mistreated in Philippi and then he sort of said, you know what, I think I've had enough of this. Um, what if he hadn't carried on to Thessalonica and then on to Berea? There would be a huge number of people that wouldn't have heard the gospel in there. Um, Acts tells us that the initial church in Thessalonica was made up of a few Jews and then a great multitude of devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. And that's a lot of people, isn't it? And it's quite diverse. Um, and we'll see that Paul develops this real love for these people and a real pride in them. And he even goes as far as to describe them as his glory and joy. But that would be getting ahead of ourselves. What I want to try and do this week is wade through the first three chapters of 1 Thessalonians because I think it gives us a really interesting insight into how Paul and Silas behaved as missionaries. Um, the response then of the Thessalonian people and then that relationship that grows between them. So I'm going to start with chapter 1 and bounce through some of it fairly quickly. Um, but what I want to try and do is build some lists of patterns um, as we go. So for the first part of the message, I've got bits on the screen, and then eventually that will disappear. 
So chapter one is a kind of brief overview of what happened. It's not very long. Um, and I'm going to read the whole lot, but only from verse two. Okay. We always give thanks to God for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers, constantly keeping in mind your work of faith and labor of love and perseverance of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ, in the presence of our God and Father. Knowing, brothers and sisters, beloved by God, his choice of you. For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Just as you know what kind of men we proved to be amongst you for your sakes, you also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word during great affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but in every place the news of your faith toward God has gone out, so that we have no need to say anything. For they themselves report about us as to the kind of reception we had with you and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead. That is Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. And what I want us to notice in this chapter is the process of what happened. Okay, I feel like this chapter is the what happened, and then chapter two will kind of be the how it happened. Um, so the first point I want to pull from it is verse five, and I think it's a really, really important one, and that is that they brought the gospel not just in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit. If we remember from the account in Acts, Paul spent three Sabbaths, in the temple, reasoning with the Jews from the scriptures. And that was actually his custom. This was his habit. He went and did this wherever he went. Um, because actually our faith is a reasonable faith, isn't it? It stands to reason. It's not just based on wishy-washy things that we can't examine. Um, there's a wealth of historical evidence for Jesus. And then as Paul was showing them, uh, you know, in those days, no one would have doubted that Jesus had existed. But Paul was showing them how actually he fulfilled all of these prophecies in the ancient scriptures that showed that he was actually the Christ. Um, you know, and I truly believe that actually that aspect of Christianity is a really important one if we want to have the strongest possible foundation. Um, so, I mean, if that does interest you, then there's the, the book that some of you might have heard of, The Case for Christ. I think that's a really, a really good book. But if you're not the best reader like myself, there is a film of it on Amazon Prime, if you're willing to watch a couple of adverts, you can watch it for free. Um, and I thought that was actually really good. Um, <laughs> so we shouldn't really shy away from the fact that our faith is reasonable and it has this logical grounding. Um, and like Paul experienced, not everyone will be convinced. Um, but a lot of people, I think, in this day and age believe that Christianity is all kind of pie in the sky and, and that it's, they don't realize how much historical evidence there is for it. Um, but keeping that in mind, verse 5 shows us that the most effective evangelism isn't just found in words, but also with power and the Spirit. Now, since power comes from the Holy Spirit, I want to kind of lump them together. <laughs> and then we get our favorite duo of the Word and Spirit, don't we? Which, um, if you were here last time, um, when I was talking about how we grow and the importance of having both Word and, both, and Spirit together, um, you know, the, basically that combination should just be present everywhere, shouldn't it, in what we do. Okay, the next point I want to add to my little list 
is from also verse 5. And it says, they proved their character to the people. It says, just as you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. So Paul and Silas, they had the character and the conviction to back up the message that they brought. Um, it says they brought the gospel in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction, meaning they were absolutely convinced of the message that they brought. And then their characters made that pretty obvious, I think, to the people. They didn't just breeze into town, hang out in the preacher's green room, you know, away from the masses, preach a couple of times and then fly on their way again. They lived among the people. They shared their lives with them. They allowed them to see who they really were. In, in chapter 2, Paul puts it like this. We were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you had become very dear to us. And I can say, quite honestly, that the people who've had the greatest influence on my growth as a Christian um, are those that have allowed me to live some of life with them, the ones that have let me see a little bit behind closed doors um, and share their real selves with me. There's a lovely couple that I knew as a student and um, we had this arrangement where I would go and do their ironing and then they would feed me a nice home-cooked meal. And that works really nicely if you're a student because that's the thing you're kind of missing, isn't it? Is that home feeling, the, f the feeling of family and so on. And it worked out really well. Um, but also during that period of time, they went through something really difficult, really painful for them. Um, and it was a long time ago and God's brought about a lot of healing since then which is absolutely fantastic but during the middle of that it was really difficult for them and sometimes I'd be ironing and I'd always watch the telly while I was doing it um, and then I'd hear from behind the closed doors I'd hear crying or I'd hear um, like an emotional conversation going on um, but what really struck me was the little bits that I overheard they were just oozing with integrity you know these people they weren't saying one thing in public and then something different in private, um, you know, I wasn't trying to overhear, but I heard enough to know that they really lived by their convictions and they had character that was holding true in the middle of something that was incredibly difficult for them. Um, and and that, had, that had two effects on me, I would say. The first is that I ended up trusting them a lot because you see that someone has real integrity and you know that they're trying to do things by the word as best they can then that builds a lot of trust. Um, but also, it gave me something to aspire to. It, it gave me something to kind of try and imitate myself. Um, and that brings us on to the next point in verse 6, where Paul says, you became imitators of us and of the Lord. Because essentially the people saw them and they said, I'm so impressed by these guys, I want to try and be like them. And that's how I felt when I saw the integrity in these people. You know, I... I want to grow up to be like that kind of a thing. Um, and that's not to say, obviously, we're putting people on pedestals or, um, you know, kind of literally copy people. It's, it's trying to up our game because we're so impressed by what we've seen. And then the last point I want to pull out of chapter one is that these people then became examples to others in their faith towards God and by the word of their testimony. Um, now, one thing that struck me from this, if you notice, 
the people they became examples to, they were other believers. And I think if I didn't read that carefully, I would think they became examples to the non-believers. And I guess they did. But, but actually, they became examples to other believers. And you can't really tell whether that was that they were being an example um, of how the gospel can turn lives around or whether actually the other people decided, I think I'd quite like to imitate them. Maybe it was a, a bit of both. But either way, people were hearing about how well they were getting on and it was inspiring them in some way or other. So that's what happened. Um, Paul and Silas brought the gospel in word, power, and the Holy Spirit. They proved their character, and then the people became imitators of them and the Lord, and then the people then became examples to those around them. So there's quite a, a nice progression there. Um, but chapter 2, I think, gets more interesting, because we're past the overview now. And we're into some more specifics of how Paul and Silas went about being missionaries. Um, so I'd say if you have even the tiniest bit of desire in you to be an effective missionary or someone who disciples other believers, um, then this is the kind of thing to pay attention to. Um, the first point I want to make from this bit is in verse 4. I'm going to skip through this chapter a little bit quicker. Um, it says, just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who examines our hearts. Because our aim should always be to please God and not people. And then if you look at what it says at the end of that, what is it that God's looking at? Is it our actions, our success rate, the number of miracles we perform, the number of people who have come to believe because of us? No, it says he examines our hearts because our heart is really where it's at. And, you know, that's, that's all the way through the word, isn't it? Man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. Um, so we should really give more attention to the state of our heart than anything else. If we remember 1 Corinthians 13, it says, If I speak with the tongues of men and angels but do not have love, I've become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Heaven forbid. Um, and if I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I deliver my body to be burned but do not have love, it profits me nothing. Now, Paul knew this. Of course he did. Paul wrote that. <laughs> he knew very, very well that for all the good works he might do, the one thing that really mattered was the state of his heart. Was he doing things in love? Did he have integrity? Was his character holding up? So I think, you know, that, that has got to then lead into what he says in verses 5 and 6, where he says, For we never came with flattering speech, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others, even though as apostles of Christ we might have asserted our authority. They didn't try and flatter people. Now, if you were around when I did the message on wolves in sheep's clothing, that was quite a while ago now, um, you might remember that actually lots of flattery is a bit of a red flag anyway. Um, but they weren't motivated by that. They weren't trying to get things from these people. They weren't greedy, um, neither materialistically. They didn't really want to try and get anything. Or even in terms of glory, you know, they weren't looking for praise um, and actually, from a lot of the people there, they didn't get it, did they? They got persecution. <laughs> um, they didn't want recognition. 
They were much more interested in having God's approval. Instead, they had the heart of a parent towards these people. Verse 7 describes them as being gentle among you as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. And verse 11 says, Just as you know how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you as a father would his own children. Yeah, Paul and Silas are t- acting towards them like parents. And they're not out to scam them or to get things from them. You know, the same way we're not trying to get things from our own children, are we? You know, what would really we want the best for them? We, want, we sacrifice ourselves for them. We do our best to, to guide them in love so that they can walk well before the Lord. And linked to that, Paul and Silas worked hard to make sure they weren't a burden. Verse 9 says, For you recall, brethren, our labor and hardship, how working night and day so as not to burden any of you, we proclaim to you the gospel of God. And I kind of want to know from that whether they worked to earn money or whether they worked in such a way where they just made themselves available at whatever time was convenient to the other people. I I don't know. It could have been both. But either way around, they were making sure that they weren't troubling these people. They weren't a burden, but they were a blessing. Um, and they weren't sending like lists of demands. This is what I need. Um, or, you know, you need to work around our schedule. We will be here to preach at this time. You need to be there or you're going to miss out kind of a thing. Um, they shared their lives with them. They lived among them and they genuinely loved them. It wasn't false. It wasn't just putting it on. Um, and that meant that they were genuinely considerate. So that is a summary of how Paul and Silas went about their missions work. Okay, I think the first two chapters are kind of overviewy, and it shows us that their heart and their attitude were always of really big importance to them. So I think from that we we need to take that that's the same for ourselves, isn't it? Whatever we're doing, if it's missions, if it's not, um, our heart matters. Now we could go into that. We could spend the whole of the rest of this morning talking about that, but I have no idea if I'm going to be given many more slots. So (laughs) um, I don't still want to be doing this preach series in two years' time. (laughs) So the the last bit of chapter two, and then going into chapter three, this is the bit that really captured me. Um, And that's Paul's love for the Thessalonians. He takes a little bit of time at the end of chapter two just to encourage them in the middle of their persecution, because that's got to have been really difficult. Um, So he reminds them, these people that are doing this, God's not pleased with them, and his wrath is upon them. Um, But then, we get to verses 17 and 18. And this is the bit that really grabbed me, because when I first read this, like with a view to potentially teaching it, um, I was doing it right towards the end of COVID restrictions. So I want you to try and think back to how it felt, not at the beginning when we were all kind of fresh to it and enthusiastic, but at the end when we were all a bit fed up, yeah? When it's been over a year since we've been able to meet as a church um, and we're, we're, we're weary and it's dragging on and on and we miss each other, okay? And that's the point where I was at and I read Paul's words here. But we, brethren, having been bereft of you for a short while, in person, not in spirit, were all the more eager with great desire to see your face. 
For we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, more than once, and yet Satan thwarted us. So I read that. I was like, oh my gosh, I really relate. I really, really relate to Paul here. I felt bereft. You know, we'd been kept apart for so much longer than we ever expected, and I really did long to see you all in, you know, face-to-face. Um, we'd had Zoom calls and so on, and text messages and phone calls and stuff, but I hadn't seen you in person, most of you. Um, and Paul didn't even have all of that stuff that we had, the online communication and stuff. There was no Facebook updates so that he knew that people were doing okay. Um, he didn't have any of that. He just left Thessalonica And then from that point on, he had no idea. These people that he'd grown so fond of, shared his life with, and he treated them as if they were his children. And he just genuinely really missed them. So when he carries on into chapter three, I really like felt this strong sense of how he must be feeling. The beginning of the chapter, it starts like this. Therefore, When we could endure it no longer, we thought it best to be left behind at Athens alone, and we sent Timothy, our brother in the gospel of Christ, to strengthen and encourage you as to your faith. Then if you jump down to verse 5, he carries on again. For this reason, when I could endure it no longer, I sent to find out about your faith, for fear that the tempter might have tempted you, and our labor should be in vain. Now, I find that kind of moving. I've got this image in my mind of Paul being driven slightly mad by the fact that he doesn't know how they're getting on. Twice, he says, when I could endure it no longer. Yeah, he cared for them so much. He knew they were under persecution. um, And he was desperate to know that they were okay. So I want to try, try and capture how he must have felt when Timothy came back to report to him that actually they were doing all right. Yeah, verse 6 tells us, but now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us good news of your faith and love and that you always think kindly of us, longing to see us just as we also long to see you. It it makes me feel a little bit like those romance films where you've got someone that's desperately in love and they finally find out that the person loves them back. Like he misses them and then he gets word that they miss him too. And it's huge to Paul. It's huge because he carries on. And he says, for this reason, brethren, in all our distress and affliction, we were comforted about you through your faith. If we then jump down to verse 9, he says, for what thanks can we render to God for you in return for all the joy with which we rejoice before our God on your account? As we night and day keep praying most earnestly that we may see your face and may complete what is lacking in your faith. You can almost feel that joy and that relief, can't you? And that's the bit that really captured me in this. It's that relationship between the church and Paul. Um, Finding out how they were doing had helped him to cope with hardships. He was distressed. He was facing affliction. But knowing that their faith was still strong really comforted him. And he was full of thanks towards God as well. Um, His main desire now was to be able to get back to them, to fill in the gaps in their theology. Um, He talks about completing what was lacking in their faith. And I I think that's a reference to the fact that he had to leave before he was done teaching them. Um, And then, like I've said, because they didn't have the kind of resources that that we have, um, they just didn't have answers to their questions. They had to do the best that they could with the information they had. And actually, they did get some stuff wrong and... 
in the sort of subsequent chapters when we come to look at those, we'll see some of the things that he had to um, talk to them about. Um, but for the first half of this letter, you can see Paul's feelings for them, and you get this sense of the journey they've been on together. If we jump back over to a verse that I deliberately ignored earlier, um, at the end of chapter 2, we see that he says about them, For who is our hope, or joy, or crown, or exaltation? Is it not even you, in the presence of our Lord Jesus at his coming? For you are our glory and joy. Now, I'm going to be honest, I read that, and I don't quite know what to do with that at first. That seems a little bit odd. Um, so I dug into a bit, and I've eventually settled on the idea that actually he knows his ultimate reward for serving Christ is that when Christ comes back, he's going to see these precious souls standing with him. It's not about praise. It's not about accolades. It's about the joy of seeing someone that you love standing there with you in heaven and knowing that you were able to play a part in their journey to Christ. So I want to kind of sum up a little bit. I know there's been like loads of content in there. Um, I want to sum up a little bit, and then I want to offer us a personal challenge as a church. Yeah, we've seen this group of people, this church, in a, a really major city made up of Jews and Gentiles and, of course, the not a few leading women. Um, <laughs> I like little bits like that. <laughs> Paul has brought them together. He spent his time living with them. He shared his life with them. He's been teaching them. And then there's this persecution that comes up. He's forced to leave in the night before he's done. Um, and we see this heart that he's got for them, which is reciprocated. He's, uh, he's treated them basically like a parent would their children. And then he doesn't know how they are. He knows that they're facing persecution and that they don't have that oversight anymore. Um, they don't have anyone to answer their, their difficult questions. Um, and this church is fending for itself, holding to its newfound faith. They miss Paul, he misses them, and they're all longing to be able to get back together again. He tries to go and visit them. The enemy thwarts it. So he sends Timothy to find out how they're doing, and then they're doing well, so it's a big comfort. So my challenge for us today it's actually very particular to our church at this time right now where we find ourselves because actually our main leaders are not around at the minute, are they? Um, now, that obviously, the circumstances are extremely different. There's no persecution. They've not been hounded out in the middle of the night or anything. <laughs> they're just, you know, they're on a well-deserved break after actually pouring their lives into us for many years, sharing their lives, frequently sharing their home with us and working constantly to teach us and to help us grow. Um, so the circumstances are very different. But I was struck with this thought of, if Mark sends word now asking how we're doing without them, would he be comforted by what came back? Um, would he find that our faith is strong, and we're carrying on well, and we're growing, um, even while we don't, at the moment, have his direct oversight? And when they do come back, will they find that we've kept growing or if we sat twiddling our thumbs, just waiting for them to come back in the meantime. You know, I know the circumstances are not the same. Um, and I know that we're not reliant on Mark for all of our teaching like they were reliant on Paul. 
Um, and of course, our aim is to please God, not to please people. But I'd really like for them to come back and to have a smile on their face because they see that actually we've, we've been fine and we've done well and we've kept going and we've kept learning and we've kept growing in the faith. Um, so I want to end up with the prayer that Paul prays at the end of chapter 3. I thought it was very convenient and helpful that he put a little prayer in there I could use. Um, and then next time, whenever that will be, I want to look at some of the things the Thessalonians weren't getting right. And we might be surprised that actually some of them are things that we would feel quite like, my gosh, you know, that's pretty bad. Um, but the way that Paul then goes about helping them out with that and correcting them and so on. So, I want to pray this over us now. This was Paul's heart for his dear friends. It's my heart for all of us too. May the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another and for all men, just as we also do for you, so that he may establish your hearts unblameable in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints.